If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36, that's where we will be reading from this morning. Luke chapter 9, about the transfiguration. Starting at verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we said uh, during our prayer time of top three, we're going to be talking about glory. What is glory? You might have a definition, or if I was to ask you, you might have a word or two that might summarize or define it, but what is it truly and biblically? And what does it matter for your life? What does glory matter for my life? What does glory matter for your life? Jesus displayed a great amount of glory to the disciples on a mountaintop. 2,000 years ago. But what does that mean for you and I today? This morning we're going to look at the transfiguration this passage has been called. Maybe you have a little subtitle in your Bible if you look down there above verse 28 that might even say that. The transfiguration. Or a, a metamorphosis is really the word. Transformed and changed. Changing like a, like a common caterpillar that crawls into its cocoon, comes out a beautiful butterfly. Or spring's first bud explodes, that transformation with vibrant color and and powerful sense. We know metamorphosis. We know transfiguration. We know change. But these are just a fraction compared to what happened to Jesus on that day, on that mountaintop. So we're going to look at the transfiguration, but also how should we respond to this event, to Jesus who is God in flesh? So hopefully you've got your outline there. Have your Bibles open to Luke 9? We're going to look at a few different aspects of this idea of glory and how it should impact our life in the story of the transfiguration. So here's our first section. Here's the first thing I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about God's eternal glory and how it becomes visible in this moment of history in Jesus Christ and in our lives. What is it and, and how is it visible to, was it visible to them and how is it visible to us? Remember, a little context for where we're at in Luke. 
Jesus had just given the disciples some very hard words. Do you remember last week? It was a tough message last week. Pick up your cross and follow me. He's just told them that they will suffer if they follow him. And in fact, that he is going to suffer and he's going to die and rise three days later. But what I love about Jesus, especially here, is that he's so compassionate As we read the stories, the difficult message that we talked about last week of bearing our cross, it's sandwiched between, in the Gospel of Luke, two really gracious events. The first one being the feeding of the 5,000 that they saw. That's an incredible provision Jesus made. And that he is the bread of life. This great, glorious, comforting moment they had. Then came that hard word, pick up your cross and follow. And it's sandwiched between this second event this life-changing experience they had of seeing the transfiguration of Jesus. He's so gracious to couch this this incredible, um, challenging word of following him and suffering for him, maybe even dying for him with these gracious events. As Luke says, and he doesn't do this often, Matthew and Mark do, but Luke here ties it directly to uh, those, those teachings as he says to them, now about eight days after. Luke doesn't, it's the only place really I think he does that. He ties to the days. So about a week later or so, after these difficult teachings, that Jesus goes up to this mountain. And Peter's just confessed, also remember last week in the passage about a week ago in Bible time, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's anointed Savior of the world. And Jesus goes up this, up this mountain and he doesn't take the twelve. He takes his special inner core of of three, Jesus' DNA group. Peter, James, and John, his very own little DNA group. He takes them up to this mountaintop to give them a mountaintop experience, to show them his glory. They see it with their eyes, to make visible God's eternal glory. But again, what is glory? What is glory? It's a complex biblical word and a complex concept, but at its simplest, as you heard me pray and read some of those scriptures, at its simplest, it's God's uh, magnificent status, his honor, his power, his shining presence associated with light and fire a lot, his presence with his people, his authority, his power, a, a bright white light presence. But it also carries with it the idea of weightiness, of heaviness, of something being weighty and heavy. I think I've used this example one other time, but um, last week I took my kids down to the Malala River at Knight's Bridge with that kind of unseasonably 90-degree day we had. We went down there to to the river with a couple of my kids, and when we go down there, what do kids love to do when they're at a river with rocks? Yeah, throw them in or skip them or take rocks and chuck them into the middle of, of the, the river there and make a splash. And as you know, if you take a little pebble and kind of throw it out in the river, you almost can barely sometimes even see a splash or those rings that come out from the center of water when a rock hits. You know, but if it's a small one, the energy from that rock is small and so it really doesn't disrupt the water much at all. But they also like to see who can pick up the biggest rock. Why? 
Well, we know the answer to that. You were a kid. You did it. You have kids and grandkids. They want to pick up the biggest rock because the biggest rock makes the biggest splash. The biggest splash. They like to do that. Or you've seen the video of, you know, a cliff of ice videos where it falls off. You've seen those videos and it falls into the water, you know, and, the, and there's this massive kind of wave that comes out from the, the ice cliff that's fallen into the frigid ocean. Glory is weightiness. It's a heaviness. In other words, it impacts everything around it. Like that giant boulder thrown in or that ice cliff falling into the water, it impacts in a big way. The bigger it is, the bigger the weight. All over the Old Testament, God's glory appears. His weightiness. And many times it's invisible forms. You know, remember... Some of those stories, as you know, a cloud would come down upon the tent of meeting. Or when the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness, a cloud by uh, day and a pillar of fire by night. This glory came down. Or the tabernacle, when they built that, Scripture says, was filled with this cloud of God's glory. And then after they completed the temple and Solomon completed and, and he prayed this dedication prayer, here's the prayer. As soon as, or what happened after it? As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. There it is. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And it was so incredible. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, Oh, he's good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is a great example of it, a weightiness. We see it here. The weight comes, the presence comes, the fire, the smoke fills the temple, and it's got a big impact, doesn't it? Big ripples. The people go down on their faces. They respond in body and mind and heart. It's got a big disruption. Glory. You see it perfect in this passage. It's weighty. They don't go in even. We can't go in right now. Instead, we're just going to bow down and, 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 and worship. So back to the, this mountain with Jesus and the disciples. What's going on here? It's a strange little story. Jesus goes up to the mountain, and he's shiny. Well, on the one hand, we're supposed to read this. We're supposed to get a connection and a reenactment of sorts when Moses went up to the mountain. Do you remember that? Moses went up to the mountain with God. And Moses came down from the mountain shining. But he was shining more like a moonshine with the sun reflecting off of it. We got something different here with Jesus. Moses shined like a reflector. Jesus, this is something different here. But it is to be seen as a, a reenactment of sorts of what Moses did on the mountain as Jesus really is fulfilling so much of Israel's prophecies in his entire life, fulfilling so much. But it's not Moses now here. Moses is there, we're going to see, but it's Jesus. Let me see if I can give us just kind of a simple, uh, really... Uh, understandable, accessible uh, understanding of this complex, really glorious moment. Jesus is changed physically in front of them, Scripture says here. He's changed physically. He begins to shine like lightning, like one of the other gospels says, like you couldn't bleach clothes this white. He shines 
like lightning, dazzling white. He's shining through his clothes. I was thinking about it. How do we understand this this week? I was thinking it's sort of a reverse of The Wizard of Oz. Remember that movie, The Wizard of Oz, in that moment at the end? There, they appeared before the glorious Oz, right? Fire. Look, there's the fire and smoke and light and this big presence they appeared before and they were terrified and they even kind of bowed down in front of him. But what was the secret you find out? Oz isn't very glorious, or is he, the wizard? You look behind the curtain and there was a little man back there, right? A little man behind the curtain. But here with Jesus, they see the man... And they're given a peek behind the curtain, and what they see is the eternal Son of God, visible in a peak moment of glory. In a moment of glory, he's changed, dazzling. Why, you see, in all those other instances, and here's the difference with Jesus. In all those other instances from the Old Testament, the glory of God came down, down to earth, came down on the mountain, came down on the tabernacle, came down on the temple. But now from Jesus, it comes from the inside out. Talk about a difference. God had to come down in that glory. But now with Jesus, it's glory incarnate. It comes right from him. He's like a living lightning bolt. I don't know what that would have looked like, but they were terrified, Scripture says. So it wasn't like a flashlight. I can tell you that. Glory incarnate, glory on earth. Not coming down, but emanating from him. I mean, this is a real historical moment that Luke wants us to see this as a real historical moment. And here Jesus, as he's shining, he's talking with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is shining like Moses did, coming down from the mountain, but even more so, as Moses was a reflector, the, the, the shine comes right from Jesus like the sun itself that reflects off the moon. He's talking with Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Elijah are here because they represent for us the law, Moses, and Elijah, the the prophets, and really the beginning and the end of the Old Testament period. Moses at the beginning, Elijah more so towards the end. The beginning, their bookends of the Old Testament, and representing the prophets and the law, the big things in the Jewish life. They represent those things as they talk here with Jesus. And maybe, probably Jesus has also enjoyed having a conversation with them, I would think. (laughs) He probably just enjoyed talking to them. I know they enjoyed talking to him. And they're there. What are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus' departure, Scripture says. About his going away. What is he doing? This is really a turning point we're getting to now where we now have the question answered who he is especially after today. And once the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, get to that point, who he is, from there on out, it's now I'm on my mission. Now I'm heading towards my departure. Now he sets his face like a flint, Scripture says, towards Jerusalem. So that's where we're at. They're talking about his departure. Do you know what that word actually is? If you didn't know any Greek, but you looked down at a Greek text that was in English letters, you would know this word. His departure is the word exodus. They're looking down, at, they're talking about his exodus. That he, he's going to go out. He's going to deliver, he's going to go out. He's going to lead a people forward in salvation like Moses did, but even in a greater way. Moses just delivered from oppression and suffering 
Jesus is going to go out on his exodus and deliver from death and sin. It's different. His exodus before the glory must come the suffering. We heard that last week. Pick up your cross. I'm going to the cross. You'll follow that way before the resurrection. And life must come the cross. Jesus' exodus. So Moses and Elijah are talking with him about his departure, his exodus, where he'll go. This moment in history isn't just a giant boulder being thrown into the sea. But if you could like take the earth and throw it into a bigger ocean than the earth, that's what we're getting at here. That kind of level of, of disruption, of splash, of glory, of weight, of ripple effect. What impact will this have on the disciples, do you think? And to bring it home to us, what impact should this have on you and me? On our lives? This weightiness, this glory. It's a good question to ask yourself, and maybe even write it down. And it's in the next steps on the outline there. What do you give weight to in your life? What do you give substance and weight? And, and, and authority might be another word. What do you give weight to in your life? What will you jump for? If that thing said jump and you were to say, how high? What do you jump for? Who will you jump for? Or who or what do you ascribe glory to in your life. We all have something or something or some people. We all ascribe different levels of glory to one thing or another. It means we give it a, a weightiness. It influences us. And we let him or her or that thing influence us in how we act, think, and feel. We all have those things. Is it a spouse? Is it a boss? Is it your kids? In fact, Romans describes this idea very well, and in Romans it's fairly negative. Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling Mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they exchanged the glory of God for the stuff of earth, the material, the stuff of life. They had given it an outsized proportion of weight compared to what God deserved. So it's unwise, Paul says right here. And he says it's foolish, he says. And it's dark, it's darkness to give God's glory to someone else, something else of the stuff of earth, to give anything in your life that's not God too much weight. Now, of course, people are going to influence us. They should. Our job, our boss, our kids, we're going to influence and impact each other. It's just what level of weight do we give it? And we know, Paul says, it's foolishness to do this and give God's glory to something else. But we know foolishness is really the, the opposite of wisdom. Proverbs says, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the opposite of foolishness, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So to put that verse in the language of our story today, fear the Lord. It means give him a lot of weight in your life. Not fear like afraid, shaking, um, a fear of, uh, of losing life or necessarily danger, but, but, but a reverence, an awe, a weight, glory, a weightiness. 
It made me think of Mandy just now as she was sharing. I mean, the weight of that, how would I not want someone to know this giant boulder that's come into my life and turned it upside down in a really good way? A weightiness. What things in your life are you giving too much weight to? That thing that just irritates you beyond belief and causes you to lash out, causes you to harden, causes you to say something unkind. You've given it too much weight. Too much weight. Or who are you listening to? Someone's opinion of you, maybe? Or your own opinion of yourself, maybe? You ever given your voice in your head just too much authority and weight in your life? We all do that. We all do that. That self-defeating voice that you listen to, I could never do that. I will fall flat on my face. I'll fail. I could never, I could never speak up like Josh did at work. Some of you thought that. That, that self-defeating voice was there. I couldn't do that. We give it too much weight. You know, Paul says in one place in Scripture, like, he says, I don't even judge myself. He says, I don't even judge myself. I don't care what you think of me. I don't judge myself. It's not that he's being flippant or arrogant or unkind. He's saying, no, no, what I care about is what Christ thinks about me. So much so that it's like I don't care about what I think of myself or you think of me. Paul says that in Scripture. Because he's given weight to Jesus in his life. I seek to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified, right? That's Paul's words. That's a lot of weight. We become what we pay attention to. So what voice is it? What person is it? What thing is it? Is it the weightiness of God? Jesus has all glory. So we're going to talk about letting it come into our life and make a big splash and listening to him. But that's not quite what the disciples do yet. We're going to get there in point three. But what do they do? Even in the face of God's glory, they are quick to speak and slow to listen, and sometimes so are we. Peter here, you know, Peter gets a bad rap, doesn't he? I really think he does. He gets sort of unfairly chastised by our modern ears and eyes and judged too quickly by us, because I'm pretty sure I would have responded uh, in pretty similar fashion to Peter here. <laughs> have you ever been woken up suddenly by a bang, by a noise, by a spouse asking questions or abruptly just being woken up and you just had to be on like that just on instantly like you know maybe it was your child throwing up at 3 a.m you know that just happens you're i'm on you know or spouse falling in the middle of the night that happens doesn't it you've had that happen you're like what's going on you know like you just had to be on you woke up how well do you respond not very well do you i don't maybe you're maybe you're like ready to go as soon as you wake up no no i don't respond very well to that Imagine being woken up and seeing Jesus on fire. How would you respond? <laughs> Probably not so great, right? This is what happened. This is what Luke says happened. They woke up and they see Jesus like being on fire, shining like a bright light, with two other bright guys standing there talking to him in their own glory as well. To Peter, James, and John, they should have died in this moment. And I mean that literally now. They should, they should have died in this moment. They should have died. God said to Moses, you can't see my glory and live. They should have died. But here they live. Why? 
Why? You know, we're, we're really the only people in all of history, kind of modern Westerners now, and I mean the last, you know, probably a couple hundred years, we're really the only people in all of history who have not understood well that there is a huge chasm between God and humanity. We're really the only people. We kind of expect instant answers and expect things to work out for us, and we, expect, we kind of expect a modicum of respect from the deity, you know, some level of respect. Our dues, our, we're dudes, we're owed things, our rights. All of history before kind of the modern last couple of hundred years, all of history got this better than we do today. Think of all the temples, all, of all the religions, all the temples, all the sacrifices, all the priests, all of that, it's called cultic stuff, all the religious kind of activity was all there because people of history knew there's a really big chasm between God and humanity, a huge gap, a huge problem and distance between us. And something was needed to bridge that gap. And in ancient religions, there was temples and sacrifices and different priests and different just rituals that they did to bridge that gap. Something was needed. God is glorious. We are not. There's a huge problem. There's something between us. To come into his glorious presence unaided, without a mediated presence, a priest, a sacrifice, something was what? Certain death. Certain death. They should have died here. But here, they don't die. The glory comes and they live. Why? Jesus was there. Jesus was there. The mediating presence was there. In fact, the glory was coming from him. The one who would bridge the glory gap that all humanity has known by dying on the cross, by his own exodus, he's there. That's why they don't die. He's there. They should have died, but they didn't. I hope you're getting by now that this is not an everyday occurrence uh, in the Old Testament or even in the lives of the disciples. This kind of event I mean, next to Jesus' baptism, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, this is like one of the things. This is a big deal. And Peter wakes up and says to Jesus, look at verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, that's Moses and Elijah, um, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us, let us uh, make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. <laughs> I like how Luke throws that in there. Not knowing what he was saying. If there was ever a time that silence was appropriate response, it was right now. <laughs> but Peter says something. Peter speaks up. And he asks for three tents, three booths. Really, booths, really it's the word uh, tabernacle, which is interesting. Ta- he asks for these three tabernacles to be built. Peter speaks with ignorance, verse 33 says. Why? Because he's asking for three booths. Do you know what he's doing when he asks for three booths? He's equating these three men. He's equating Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. He's putting them on the same level, equal glory. Hey, let's get three booths. We've got three pretty great guys here. Let's build them these tents. Maybe he was gonna, the disciples were going to serve them. I don't know. Maybe they wanted to prolong the conversation. But he's putting them on the same level, equal glory. And we hear that and we go, silly Peter. Ignorant Peter. Luke even says it, ignorant. But do you know something? 
every time we sin, it's like building three booths. What do I mean by that? When we sin, we're giving glory to something that doesn't deserve it. That doesn't deserve it. We're giving it an oversized weight in our life. An oversized influence. And, and, and really, it controls your life. That's why we sin. Yeah, you could call it a, a, a disproportionate love, maybe. But we give it a, a glory, a weight it doesn't deserve. It's like saying, I'm going to make a few booths. It's giving glory to something that doesn't deserve it. Our sin is putting something on equal. Actually, I would say it's actually prizing it more than Jesus' glory. It's like requesting three booths. When you glory in your career, so much so that maybe ignore your family, ignore your church. Maybe you glory in your kids too much. Family can become an idol too. Glory in your kids so much you lose all other relationships or, or sense of self. And you isolate off from the world. When you glory in your leisure, so much you don't have time for others or time to serve. When you glory in your things so much that you won't let anybody else touch them. When you glory in your reputation so much you're willing to stretch the truth to stay squeaky clean. Or when you glory in what others think of you that you're too fearful to speak up at an injustice or a wrong. We do that. When you glory in anything else, you give it weight and authority in your life to influence you in an outsized, disproportionate way. An honor and respect and attention that only the weight of Jesus deserves. We're like Peter then in those moments. I want to build three booths, Lord. Actually, it's, it's more because it's making other things higher than the Lord when we sin. We're like Peter. He's not listening. He's not, he's not seeing it. We're too quick to speak and act when we should be listening to Jesus. So it's our third. It's our third and final point here. They should, in the face of God, be listening, but he's too quick to speak. He should just kind of pause. So Peter says this thing, you know, Peter. He says this thing, and Luke says it here like, ah, he didn't know what he was saying. Another gospel says it was ignorant. But it's, isn't it just like the grace of God to intervene? God's grace intervenes. In fact, that's the definition of grace. Intervening where we don't deserve it. Intervening where we don't even want it. Intervening where we don't even see we need it. He intervenes here. He's not even expecting it. That's the definition of grace. Something you didn't deserve or search for, even though you need, a gift comes to you. Imagine now. <laughs> Peter says his thing, and right away, this, this thing happens from heaven. This voice from heaven, heaven comes. And really, it's for this audience of three. Peter, James, and John. And for Jesus. But we're, we're speaking of Peter, James, and John here for a moment. It is for them. Can you imagine? They're on this mountaintop. You just wake up, and you say possibly one of the most ignorant things you've ever spoken in your life. That's where Peter's at right now. Let me crawl under a rock, right? Let me, Jesus, just like... Can I just slink off the mountain and you can finish this with James and John? I'm just going to step away for a minute. Um, you guys are, have at it. I'm going to step away. No, no, no. That's not what happens. What happens? God envelops them. He envelops them. He wraps himself around them. He comes to them in that moment, in their lowest moment, in Peter's probably most humiliating moment. Let's build some booths, Jesus. You know, Jesus is like a lightning bolt in front of him. And God comes to him. He initiates with Peter here. 
and James and John, just like he initiates with you in some of your most humiliating, dumbest, darkest moments. He does. He envelops them. He initiates. He finds them. That is grace. Look at 34 to 36. As he was saying these things, so that's Peter, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid. They don't realize it's grace yet. It is going to be. They don't realize yet. They were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Meaning Moses and Elijah were gone. And Jesus is just there with the three disciples. The father we see here speaks from the cloud. This is my special chosen son, Peter, James, and John. Listen to him. Listen to him. They're terrified. But all they need to do is listen. They don't need to build booths. They don't need to fuss or fret. Just listen, Peter. Just listen, James and John. Just listen, Bethany Church. Listen for his voice. Give him weight in your life, in other words. The Father is saying, give him weight. He's glorious. Look at him. Let all other voices be measured and weighed against him and what he says. That's what God is demonstrating here for these men and for us. By his voice, he's forming. He's going to shape a people, a community, the church, his bride. And there's no equal to this, this one in front of you. Listen to him. No equal to the voice of Jesus. Peter, no three booths. We don't need three booths. In fact, Moses and Elijah are gone. Here's what, who you need to see and hear. Jesus. No building. This passage is... Strong. I mean, you could say here, there is no equality here with Jesus and anyone else or any other religious system, whether it's Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Gandhi, or any other teacher or prophet. This passage does not let you do that. There's no place for that in this passage. There's no room for that. This is a divine declaration from God. You have nowhere else to turn. Listen to him. No other voice to listen to. Listen to him. This is it. He's my beloved, as he said at the baptism. And now he says, he's my chosen. Listen to him. He's absolutely unique, in other words, is what God is saying. Absolutely unique. Did you notice, after the cloud, Jesus is the only one standing there. No more Moses. No more Elijah. He uniquely stands alone. Will he do that in your life? Will he do that in our church? Or will other things compete against him in your life in our church? Because he, one day, he will show up again. He's here, but literally as the son, he will show up physically again and manifest and show himself in his unique glory to all the entire world, not just the DNA group of Peter, James, and John. The whole world. It's why he is to be worshipped. He's absolutely unique. This is God in flesh. Yet one to whom we can relate because he's human, yet one who shines brighter than the sun. And if that's the case, we must worship him more and more with our lives. And and for many of us, Jesus needs to make a bigger splash in our lives. For a lot of you, 
Jesus needs to make a bigger splash. His authority and his voice, what do they require of us if he is to make a big splash? Well, he requires us to look at the world differently, to value different things in the world values, to listen to a different perspective on morals, on goodness, on beauty, on truth, on everything, on justice, on peace, on life, on death, on resurrection, everything. His voice. On love. On love. This great, glorious, shining being who in flesh died so we could face death differently. We have to listen to him. And as I say that, I know right now, you probably, most of you agree with that. Yeah, like, I know that. Listen to Jesus more. I know, listen to his word more. I know we need that. So my follow-up question is then, why don't we? Why don't we find ourselves scouring more over his word to, to hear from him? Why do we spend so little time? And I'm talking about myself right now. Why do, we, why do I spend so, such little time communicating, communicating with him in prayer and, and, and listening for his voice that way too? Why do I spend such little time? If I know this and I believe this, the intellectual has not become um, heart level or existential. It's state intellectual. It needs to become existential, like experience, knowing it in my bones. Yeah, we know it. Yeah, listen to Jesus. Nobody's probably going to stand up and say, we should not listen to Jesus here. No. But why don't we do it more then? What we know as intellectual has not become existential, for lack of a better word. We need to not just know how he is glorious, we need to experience it if we're going to really listen. The story back in 20, uh, well, it was 2022. And I read this quote back in 2022, and I was just waiting for the place when I was going to use it because it was just so incredible uh, that this story I was reading. I don't know if you ever saw the story that in 2022, William Shatner went up to space. You know, William Shatner, he was, he was, I think, 90 at the time. He was played um, Captain uh, Kirk. Um, I almost said Picard. Sorry, offending any of you old school Star Trekkers. Uh, I go with, I like Captain Picard. But Captain Kirk, William Shatner, was... Um, talking in this story. And he was explaining how he, he knew there were mysteries to life. Like he knew it intellectually. I know, I know I'm missing something. I know there's something big. I know I'm disconnected from it. The story was talking about all this. He knew he was not connected to the mystery of life. We might call that God. I don't think William Shatner, hearing this quote, I don't think he's a man of faith. I don't ever heard he's professed faith in Jesus. And from this quote, I wouldn't think he has. But the, the story talks about him. He knew he was disconnected from the big thing. The chasm was there. He had some knowledge of it in his head. But then he went up to space. And something really sad happened. Here's what he said. As he went up to space and he looked outside of the spaceship, he said, I saw as he looked away from the earth. He was looking away from the earth for a moment. I saw cold, dark, black emptiness. It wasn't like any blackness you can see or feel on earth. It was deep, enveloping. Reminds me of that smoke. Enveloping, all-encompassing. And then I turned back toward the light of home. So he turned from the one side of the ship to the other to look at earth. I could see the curvature of the earth, the beige of the desert, the white of the clouds, and the blue of the sky. It was life, nurturing, sustaining life. Mother Earth, Gaia, and I was leaving her... Everything I had thought was wrong. Everything I had expected to see was wrong. 
I had thought that going into space would be the ultimate catharsis of that connection. He wants it. He knows intellectually it's not there. The connection I've been looking for between all living things, that being up there would be the next beautiful step to understanding the harmony of the universe. And yet it was amongst the strongest feelings of grief I ever encountered. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm nurturing of earth below filled me with overwhelming sadness. It was amongst the strongest feelings of grief I had ever encountered. What happened for him? What he knew intellectually that there was a chasm between him and God, existentially he experienced the reality of it. When he looked out there, he didn't see an all-powerful God. The heavens didn't declare the glory of God to Shatner, but he had that kind of experience. What he knew intellectually, I'm distant from God. There's a disconnection between me and all things of life. Oh yeah, he experienced it up there. Did it impact him? Did it make a big splash in his life? What did he say? It was among the strongest feelings of grief I ever had. How sad. The intellectual becoming a reality for him. See, we need an experience like that, but the opposite. We need to not only know the glory of Christ, we need to pursue it and experience it too. If you only intellectually know it, it's not going to make a big splash in your life. You have to pursue his glory You have to see it and submit to his authority and listen to his voice. He gave these three a sneak peek. We can only imagine. But when it grips you as real, it will change you from the inside out. And then you and I, we will listen more and more. And his splash, his ripple effect will grow in our life. Because what's waiting on the other side for us? Glory too. Do you know that? Glory is waiting for you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they got weight. They got weight. They're eternal. Paul writes, look to those unseen things, the glory that's coming to face today. This past Friday, um, Pastor Tim Keller succumbed to his uh, pancreatic cancer. Apart from pastors I've known personally in my life, Pastor Don, another different Pastor Tim, Pastor Dale, and I would add uh, Jack Rance to that here at Bethany Church, apart from those men, Pastor Keller's been the most influential man in my life. And I was, I was grieved this week by hearing of his, his passing. He was kind of a pastor to me, a, a pastor to pastors. He was my, my pastor in some ways. I've listened to countless hours of his sermons and read most of his books. But as much weight as he has had in my life, and he's had a lot of weight in my life, maybe glory, influence, he's made an even bigger splash in the evangelical world. Why? He knew you had to look to the eternal weight of the glory of Jesus' face to get through today. And one of the greatest things he did for the church. He said this in an interview in 2021 when he was first diagnosed with his pancreatic cancer. He said this, when some people say, well, when you die, it's just over, there's, there's nothing to be afraid of. My response is, what you're saying is that death means the end of, of love, of everything? Are you telling me not to dread that? Give me a break. 
If I know there's love on the other side of death, I can face it. If I know there's infinitely greater glory love on the other side, then I can really face it. This last Friday, he said this. There's no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I want to see the glory. I can't wait to see Jesus. And he finished, send me home. Send me home. Does the glory of God in the face of Jesus grip you? Does it grip you? Does he make a big splash in your life? Remember what Paul said last week when Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? He intellectually got the right answer. You're the Messiah, Jesus. William Shatner, he got the right answer. Yeah, there's a big chasm between me and whatever life force is out there. And if Peter just tells us, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, that's important. That'll have some weight in your life. But what do you think Jesus, or what do you think Peter thought about the Messiah after this experience? Yeah, he's the Messiah. I, I got it right intellectually, but no, now I know if Peter shows him, his, if Jesus shows Peter his glory. What type of weight will he have in your life? What type of splash will he make? After this glimpse, they knew it, not just intellectually, but every cell of their being. May God give us, Bethany Church, that glimpse in our personal lives and here in our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can see your glory and may you help us find it through prayer, through community as Peter, James, and John did, through knowing our sonship and daughtership too as you said, I'm pleased with my son. And as we continue to submit our lives in little places and little parts and in big parts here and there to his voice, let us listen. In Christ's name, amen.